I actually was reading a back issue of the Smithsonian this past week and and found it at a friend's house and I was waiting for something. And so I was reading this article by Francis Scott Key, and it's all about the writing of the national anthem. He penned the song while on a British naval ship outside the Baltimore Harbor. It was during 1812, that, that War of 1812. It was the Battle of Baltimore. He was actually on this sloop negotiating the release of a prisoner. America had actually declared war on Britain, and it is one of the wars that America declared that barely had the margin to win in order for our nation to go into it. And in fact, the uh, tensions back in 1812, which brought this war about and, and brought things to the boiling point, was due to the fact of, again, trade issues that were going on with Britain. American ships were seeking to trade in Europe, and they were being stopped by British, the British Navy. And they would take those ships and remove the cargo and, and keep the things and bring them to Britain. And then they would take the sailors and make them naval sailors on their own British ships as they were fighting against Napoleon's France. And as you know, our relationship back then after the American Revolution, that we had somewhat of a a trading relationship with France. And, And so things got to the point where America declared war. And the sad thing about it at that point is our army was very weak. James Madison was the president at the time. And Washington, D.C. was one of the first places that Britain came right to the capital and actually came through, ransacked it, burned many, many buildings and, and everyone had to leave the city. It, it looked bad for America. And they were wondering where they would go next. And the whole British Armada came. They came into that naval ships, came into the Baltimore Harbor. And it was there on that ship, Francis Scott Key was seeking to get release from a prisoner. And he couldn't get off the ship because at that point the battle actually began. And uh, Britain began to fire one bomb after another. All through the night of September 13th, 1814, the, the fort was pounded with, with so many bombs that it went through the whole night. And Key was up watching this throughout the whole night. Smoke filling the air. In fact, bombs bursting in air, literally. A new kind of bomb that they had was exploding in the air. And finally, at the dawn of September 14th, Key stood looking at the fort, expecting it to be demolished, expecting things to be the worst. And as the smoke cleared in the dawn and the light of the morning light and the mist gave way, there was this huge American flag just wafting back and forth. Huge flag. And Francis Scott Key, who was a lawyer and author and really an amateur poet, because this is the only thing that really got published, he scribbled on a piece of paper the words of the Star-Spangled Banner, that which we sing so proudly as a nation today. He had actually titled it The Defense of Fort McHenry and published it just a few days later in a paper called The Patriot. But it was the sight of the flag and the ineffectiveness of a 25-hour bombardment that convinced the commanding British officer Cochrane that the harbor couldn't be breached. And so soon, the ships began pulling out of the harbor. They released Key. They released the prisoner. 
At Fort McHenry, what was going on is Major General George Armistead, with a force of only 1,000 men and only 20 cannons, held the fort. He had actually commissioned a number of weeks before that Mrs. Pickersgill of Baltimore to make a flag large enough for the ships to see from the distance. And the flag was 30 feet by 43 feet and is in the Smithsonian today. Major General Armistead wanted a symbol that would not allow anyone any doubt that the United States was not just standing, but that it would remain free and victorious. And he wanted it to be so large that it could be seen by all the ships in the harbor. I thought about that as I began to think about this symbol. It just hit me as I was reading that there is a symbol that God uses, that Jesus actually helped develop when he was here on earth, that John the Baptist began, that reveals to people the fact and the reality of this truth, that you have been forgiven, that you are now to live in freedom, and that your life will end victorious because of this God who loves you and is committed to you so much so that he would not hold anything back, would even give his son Jesus Christ, so that in his gift and sacrifice, he says it's not anything that you could do, it's not how good you could be, it's not about you at all, it's about his love and willingness on your part to receive it. And he says, baptism is that symbol that should be big enough and large enough so that when people see it, they want to ask, what's that about? Why do you do that? Why does the church baptize? It's the symbol that causes the enemy to quiver when a person says to this act, God, my Father, and Jesus, my Lord, you have unreservedly given yourself to me. Today, this day, I publicly proclaim through this baptism that I give myself unreservedly to you. I will live in your forgiveness. I will live free in your grace. And I will know that everything, even if things are, are turning south right now in my life, will someday head north in victory. That's what baptism is. And what I want to do this morning is to quickly look at how the simple symbol of baptism came to be that big symbol of our faith. Because you look in the Old Testament, you may not find references. Where did this all of a sudden come from? What was going on? And so the, the thing that I want us to do is look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And I want to read it from the message because I want it to feel fresh. I want it to be read as if it was kind of spoken in our language. And so I'm going to read to you these verses. Verse 1 and 2, while Jesus was living in the Galilean hills, John called the baptizer was preaching in the desert country of Judea. His message was simple and austere, like his desert surroundings. Change your life. God's kingdom is here. John and his message were actually authorized by Isaiah's prophecy. He was foretold that, it, that he would come. And so he, 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 this words in, in Isaiah say, thunder in the desert, prepare God for God's arrival, make the road smooth and straight. And John dressed in camel hair habit, tied at the waist by a leather strap. He lived on a diet of locusts and wild field honey. People poured out of Jerusalem, Judea and the Jordanian countryside to hear and to see him in action. There at the Jordan River, those who came to confess their sins were baptized into a changed life. And when John realized that a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees were showing up for the baptismal experience because it was becoming the popular thing to do, I like the way that said, because that's what was happening. He exploded. 
brood of snakes. What do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snakeskins is going to make any difference? It's your life that must change, not your skin. And don't think you can pull rank by claiming Abraham as father. Being a descendant of Abraham is neither here nor there. Descendants of Abraham are a dime a dozen. What counts is your life. Is it green and blossoming? Because if it's dead wood, it goes on the fire. I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. The real action comes next, though. The main character of this drama, compared to him, I'm really just a stagehand. The main character will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. And he's going to clean house, make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God. Everything false he'll put out with the trash to be burned. Let's just pray. Father, open our hearts to these few thoughts. Help us to understand what it means to walk in relationship with you, Jesus, so that, Jesus, you, on a daily, moment-by-moment basis, are working in the inner parts of our heart to bring about the kind of change outside that reflects everything about you inside. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to share with you is baptism as a symbol of preparation. Because as we look at this and you kind of look at the history of this symbol, this great big symbol that God wants for people to see and understand, is it begins in Matthew 3 here in these first 10 verses. It's all about preparation. John came preaching a message of repentance. He was calling Israel to repent. The word actually metanoo in the Greek, metanoo, means to think again. Uh, we, we get all kinds of different ideas around the word repent, but the idea of what Jesus was saying is, is an against like, like what John the Baptist was doing when these Pharisees and them came before him, the Sadducees, was think again your strategies of living. Do you really think that if you could just come down here and put some water on your skin, that's going to somehow make you right before God? Think again your life right now. In, in a real way, the word repentance is the word that comes to you right now by the voice of the Holy Spirit, possibly right in your own situation as I'm speaking, that says, think again the way you're living. Is it one that opens your heart to the work of God? Is it one on a daily basis allows for you to stand in the presence of God, to meet this God, to be with this God, to experience this God? And so John the Baptist came with a message of preparation. The New International Version says it this way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he spoke these words through prophet Isaiah. And here, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. It's, it's what they would do often when, when a, a king or someone of royalty or some personage would come into a town. They would make sure that all things were level, that all things were clear, and the road was prepared. There would be no obstacles in the way so that this person could come. And be present. John spoke as the last and greatest prophet during this transitional period. Think about it. He was the last and greatest prophet to Jesus during this transitional period from the Old to the New Testament. 
Some of you have been in some of our sessions in June where we talked about a sigmoid curve, this idea that something new gets interjected into something that seems to be going fairly well in, in, in some people's minds. It's moving in this direction. It gets interjected in a certain time. It creates a sense of chaos. And as I was doing this message, I thought to myself, this transition between the Old and the New Testament, think about it, it had to be the biggest sigmoid curve ever. Because this guy, Jesus, comes through the message of John the Baptist. First he's there, and then Jesus comes in. He starts saying things like, tear this temple down, and, 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 and it will be raised again in three days. He, he brings all these changes of what was happening in the old so that the new could come by the Spirit of God. And John was the one who came preparing that, saying, I want you to be prepared. I want you to understand what's in the way, what's in the way of your relationship with God. You need to remove it so that God can have free access in your life. John was a prophet. You read these verses four through six. His clothes were made of camel hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And and that's a pretty prophetic kind of person. Then in the Old Testament, you had these guys doing crazy stuff. And so John comes, he's noted as a prophet in verses 7 through 10. Not only is he like a prophet, dress like a prophet, look like a prophet, he speaks like a prophet. Can you, just the words. He looks at a bunch of religious, it'd be like me going into the headquarters of our denomination in free church and say, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. I, that's, that was his message. Because it was this hard message that was calling people to an authentic life so that God could begin to move into their life in a way that there would be no hindrance. They were to prepare for Jesus and the coming of God. Now, understanding this symbol, which we have called baptism, requires understanding why the people called him John the Baptizer. You might go, well, duh, that's pretty easy. He was baptizing people. He was. But what he was doing was, in some ways, rather unique. In prophets, where those kind of people were always upsetting the apple cart, and they do it even to this day, they come with a message to agitate the comfortable and to comfort the agitated, right? They take God's word and they hit you from a different angle, and it forces you to have to think through your own paradigms. And that's what this act of baptism did. This, this baptism, which was a symbol at that point of preparation. It was an act and a symbol that was primarily for the pagan. It wasn't for the Jew. Baptism in John the Baptist's day was something that they would do for a person who wanted to enter into the life of what it meant to be a descendant of Abraham and to move into this Jewish faith, to move into this God, Yahweh, over this people, Israel, to become, in a sense, like an Israelite. They would actually be baptized. They'd be washed with water. They would be immersed with this water so that it would represent the cleansing from their old life and from their own life of sin. And it would talk about they would leave this pagan life behind and enter into this brand new life of this community of Israel. Now, now catch this. John the Baptist comes along and takes one of their symbols of baptism. And he says now to all of you, it would be all of you who are good Jews, who are descendants of Abraham. You all need to do the same thing, because even though you may have to be a descendant direct line from Abraham and you may have been a person who has been in the faith and you've gone to synagogue or you've gone to all the temple um, services throughout the year and all the celebrations and feasts. You need to recognize that things are all different now. You need to enter in, not on the basis of your relationship through heredity, 
identity, not on the basis of the things you've been doing, not on any of those things at all. You enter in with your own heart, humbly, softly, with a sense, I want you, God, and I want to live in your love. And I recognize that I have blown it and I can't do a thing to enter into this community that you have called us to live into. That's what he was doing to prepare the people. Think about that. That was a huge thing. That was a that was a big turnaround. Now, I want you to think for a second. This whole idea of preparation is something God still does today. Do you know that he still sends people into your life? Think about it for a second. I'd like for you to think, who are the people that God has sent in your life that prepared your heart to meet him? God always uses people. Sometimes he uses the experiences of your life. In fact, you might be in one of those positions right now where someone maybe at work or a friend has been telling you about Jesus and about this life and this relationship with him. And now you've been going through some things where you're beginning to question through your own experience. And it may be right now, God, through these people and through this, is kind of putting you through a similar thing, this baptism of preparation where he's saying, I want you to meet me. I ask you to think about who is involved in your life and who helped you um, experience Christ, because a really good thing might be for you to take a few moments this week and even write that person a note. I mean, God may lay it in your heart or just pray for them. And I ask you to go another step and I ask you to start thinking about who is it that God has placed in your life that you are being used to help prepare them to meet Jesus. Well, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in that change from the old to the new, we see this baptism of preparation. That's what John the Baptist came to do. But what you see here when you get to verse 11, you see this baptism, which is about preparation, moves to what he says will be a baptism that is the reality of salvation that comes when you meet Jesus and you, are, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you look at verses 11 through 12, Again, we'll read as he says here in the message, I'm baptizing you here in the river, turning your old life in for a kingdom life. Okay, that's what's going on. It's a preparation for you to receive the next. The real action comes next. The main character in this drama compared to him. I'm a mere stagehand will ignite the kingdom life within you, a fire within you, the Holy Spirit within you, changing you from the inside out. He's going to clean house. He's going to clean Make a clean sweep of your lives. He'll place everything true in its proper place before God. Everything false, he'll put out with the trash to be burned. What's interesting about this baptism, it's not something you do. It's something that's been done. This is the the reality of salvation. It's the reality of the word salvation means healing in all its parts, in every part of us, emotionally, relationally, in step with God and with one another. It's this idea that when God comes, he comes into your life and he gives you the gift of his Holy Spirit. He forgives you of all your sins. And as a result of that forgiveness, you begin to live in that forgiveness and the freedom of that so that your relationship with him is completely new. It's empowered by him. And as a result of that, you begin to also then offer that same kind of relationship to other people. You, as you've received from God, begin to give to others. And so what John is saying, I'm preparing you for this person that you will meet in Jesus. And in Jesus, he comes and he's the one that baptizes you. What's interesting about that, when Jesus was here on earth, you know, he baptized no one. He never physically did not take water and baptize others. He had some of his own disciples did that. 
The only kind of baptism that Jesus does and gives is the one of reality, the one that is his work in your own heart that brings about a sense of repentance, that brings about a sense of understanding forgiveness, that brings about a new life that puts you into relationship with other believers. And so, as John says here, this baptism is really a baptism that brings about an inward reality, something new. The old has passed, this new has come. In fact, some of the Old Testament passages um, that the New Testament refers to with regard to baptism all give the same kind of idea. There's a few passages, and I'll just give them to you if you want to look at them yourself. First Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 22. It speaks about a baptism in the Old Testament. You know what that baptism was? It was a baptism with regard to Noah, who went into the waters during the time when the, the earth was flooded. There's another one that's referred to in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. This is the baptism, again, water, of Moses, who led the people through the sea. And then there's one few other references in Hebrews 9 where it's about ceremonial purification. This idea that as a result of sin or a result of things in your life, you're separated from God so that they would go through these washings or what are literally baptisms that would put them in a position where they were right with God again. And in the main pattern, each one of them is this. There was darkness or bondage. There was then God's work and this water. And then there was this. This changed life that brought about light and freedom is exactly what happens when a person is baptized in this relationship with Jesus. I'm not talking about the physical act of baptism. We're going to talk about that in a second. I'm talking about what John talks about here, and that is that Jesus comes in with his spirit, places his life into your life. And then there's this baptism as it moves through. The New Testament is Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 42. And what you see here is now this symbol, which was a symbol of preparation, which is about the reality that Jesus comes to do in your heart, now becomes a symbol again of proclamation. Baptism becomes an outward demonstration of what has happened in your heart. Peter, if you read his first sermon in Jerusalem, He says in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 42, and I'll use the message again. Peter said, change your life, turn to God, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so your sins are forgiven. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is targeted to you and your children, but also to all who are far away, whomever, in fact, our Master God invites. He went on in this vein for a long time. So I don't know how long his message is, but he went on in this vein for a long time, urging them over and over, get out while you can, get out of this sick and stupid culture. And that day, about 3,000 took him at his word and were baptized and were signed up. And they committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles and the life together and the common meal and the prayers. That day, 3,000 raised their hand and said, I'm in. 3,000 were willing to proclaim their faith through baptism. And their baptism would proclaim in action what was actually happening in their hearts. That's what we celebrate when we talk about baptism. It is this work of God that has been received in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when that, that reality has taken place, he then says, 
be baptized. Proclaim now through this great big symbol to all who see that you are God's. And God is yours. Baptism is the symbol that proclaims to the world the reality of the change that's taken place in your life. It's often the first step for one who believes. It's the symbol that points to the reality. And I do a lot of weddings, and, and I do a certain part in a wedding where I will talk about their rings and exchanging of rings. And the rings are never the reality of the relationship, right? They're a symbol that points to that. So when you're out and you're on a business trip, guys, someone sees it, they go, oh, this person's taken, right? Well, what you have in, 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 in this act of baptism is a sense that there's this declaration that says, as a result of that, oh yeah, this person is God's. In fact, if you go over to uh, Muslim countries, a person will actually um, begin to attend a Bible study and they'll be harassed by, by those in, in those closed countries. They will actually at some point accept Christ, the reality of his his baptizing them in the spirit in the sense of, of bringing about this inner change through the work of the spirit of God in their life takes place. But it's not till they actually publicly get up and, and demonstrate through this act of baptism, whether it's pouring or immersion or whatever it is, that often they are not only cut off from their family, but in some cases, when I was in seminary, we were praying for someone who was going to be baptized, was baptized and was then murdered. We often look at that, that, that time. I often say to couples when they're, when they're getting married, you know, you guys have said in your hearts that you love each other, you're committed to each other, but the day when you stand before other people and you put this ring on and you say that that's the day that proclaims to all, it's the day that kind of makes it final, that everybody knows. You want everyone to know for this day forever, this person is exclusively mine and I am exclusively hers. You see how important that baptism was in that day and in that culture, in a Jewish culture, in a, in a, in a, in a pagan culture. It was an actual symbol, it was an actual statement that says, by this public declaration and this, demonst- this demonstration outwardly, I am sharing with you what's happened inwardly in my life. And, and the reason symbols are, are, are helpful, and I'll just throw this on, just, just for kind of tack this on, one of the reasons I think immersion, baptism, is a good symbol is, is similar to the reason I think a ring is a good symbol for a marriage. Often when I will um, share in, in a wedding, I'll share that the, the symbol, because the more accurate the symbol is, the better it actually points to the reality. So I'll say to people before they exchange rings, those small in size, these rings are very large in significance, made of precious metal. That's one of the symbols. They remind us that love is not cheap or common. Indeed, love may cost us dearly. And some of the rings that I see with those diamonds, they cost a hunk. And they're made in a circle, reminding us that love must never come to an end. They're not made in a square. We must keep it continuously. So as you wear these rings, may they be a constant reminder of the promises you are making today. And with this ring, I seal my promise to be your faithful and loving husband or wife. Baptism is such a symbol. In fact, the Didache in the first century, it's called the teachings of of the 12 apostles, written around 90 A.D., gives instructions about the kind of water to use when baptizing. So this is right around the time before John um, the Apostle died. It says, concerning baptism, it says this, baptize this way, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in living water. Living water was fresh water that was moving and not stagnant. It wasn't in a cistern, it wasn't a swamp. 
because that symbol of life is what was to be meant through this baptism. But if you have no living water, baptize into other water, and you cannot do it so in cold water, do so in warm. Listen to these things. They're pretty specific instructions. But if you have neither, pour out water three times upon the head in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But make sure you have some water. Because water is representative of the cleansing of our life and his forgiveness. And immersion into the water is that similar to going into the tomb, dying to yourself, and as you're raised out of the water, you are alive to God and to his power of his spirit in your life. He begins to change your life. And so in baptism, believer makes a proclamation in response to the reality of God's promise and commitment to save us. And the one being baptized proclaims this. With this act, I seal my promise to you to be your faithful and loving follower. This next Wednesday evening, we have this great celebration that we do as a church at Lake Independence. There's about 16 or so who will be baptized. Um, Sometimes people continue to sign up to the last moment. Yes, you can do that. But I've asked uh, Alma... Hammersma, she would come and, and start our celebration that's going to happen Wednesday. If she would come and just share her story of how she came to faith in Christ. And Alma and Bowie, Boa, I'll say it right, have been here since last, this last summer, I think you started coming. So why don't you share with us some of the people and how they were engaged in your life and your own story of faith. Okay, when Boa and me signed up to get baptized, uh, Kevin asked if I could share my story and I said yes and then I thought what did I do because <laughs> by the way I'm very scared she's right from South now. Africa praise God thank you so in any case I just want to pray Lord God I'm standing here again doing something that I cannot do but you can do it Lord so I just pray will you now come and fill me with your spirit and will your spirit speak through me in Jesus name Amen My faith walk has been a process and a journey, and many people played a part in that. I grew up in a Christian home in South Africa. I was baptized as a baby in a Dutch Reformed church, and I was confirmed as a teenager because that was what everybody did. I had a solid head knowledge of the Bible, and I had religion. What I did not have was a personal relationship with Christ, and I certainly did not know how to live as a Christian on a day-to-day basis. At that time, I knew more about what I should not do in order to escape punishment from God than about a loving and a God that loves me unconditionally. As a young adult, I continued to go to church only because I was scared that I would be punished by God. And I also just did that as far as it didn't interfere with my life. But I lived my life pretty much according to that song, I did it my way. I thought that I was in control of my life. Submission, trust and yielding was definitely not part of my vocabulary. I was on a mission to be successful, and I believed that it was up to me to make that happen. I did achieve success, all in the world standards. I got a good education, a great job, a good-looking, and I might add, clever husband. Two healthy, beautiful children, and we were financially blessed. With each of these achievements, of my plan and on my schedule, I was never fully satisfied. 
I was not, it was not providing the fulfillment and the joy that I yearned for deep in my soul. Something was missing and it seemed to be just out of my reach. But thanks be to God, he had another plan for my life. A plan to show me ever so gently that I am not actually in control. That there is a far better life, the best life, where he is in control. Where I can put my hand in his hand and just allow him to lead me. Through a series of events, he showed me the life of abundance that we can only have in him. The life that he paid for us with his life. I am sad to say that this realization did not come overnight. It took me a long, long time with lots of mistakes of turning from God and going my own way and lots of regrets. I only can, I can, if I can only do it over, but I cannot. The good and wonderful news is, however, that throughout my rebellion and my turning away from God, he never, ever turned away from me. God never gave up on me. He was always there, protecting me, caring for me, loving me, and allowing me to make mistakes so that I can learn. That is why one of my favorite Bible verses is Lamentations 3:22 to 23. And from the Amplified Bible it says, It is because of the Lord's mercy and his loving kindness that we are not consumed, because his tender compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I can testify to that. Time does not allow me to share my entire journey, and I'm sure you're all very happy about that. But a couple of events uh, I feel I can share, which is part of my transformation. Two of the earliest events were the birth of my beautiful children. When I, was, when I expected my son, I found myself in a situation where I was not in control. That was unfamiliar territory to me. During my pregnancy, I prayed that God would not punish me for my sins and rebellious ways. Remember, I came from that background of punishment if I'm not doing good. And I just prayed, God, that my baby would be healthy. I still remember when he was placed in my arms. At that moment, I knew for sure that there was an almighty and a loving God that can create something so perfect. He was indeed wonderfully and perfectly made. And I tell him all the time. The same can be said for my lovely baby daughter. Both my children are undeserved gifts from God, and I can never thank him enough for them. Just after the birth of my daughter, my youngest, we joined a new church where we were exposed to very strong Bible-based teaching. The church was also filled with people that really, really loved God. That was not just religion, the religion, but that was the real thing, like in this church. That was another new experience. During this time, we were also in a small group with two older couples. They were strong influences in our lives and great role models for our faith during hard times. They showed us how to live the Christian life on a day-to-day basis. I can really encourage everybody to join a small group. At that point in my life, I wanted to please God very much, but did not want to let go of my control over my plans for my life. I had one foot in the world and one foot in a relationship with God, and that caused conflict and stress in my life, not such a good place to be in. I believe that our move to the United States was one of the ways that God used to show me to give up the control. 
I felt like Abraham who left his home, his country, his family and everything that was familiar to go where I believed God has called us to be. This was a big step for me. I had to completely trust God now and enter in a new world where I didn't know anybody and everything was unfamiliar to me. In my head, I pictured myself as a missionary for God all the way from Africa, and I always tell the Americans when they ask me, why am I here? (laughs) I poured all my energy into service for God, and my faith grew as I participated in Bible studies, prayer groups, and service opportunity. But even then, I was very much focusing on the doing instead of being made new from the inside. One of the biggest faith milestones was attending a Unidos and Cristo retreat. During this retreat, I came to know in my heart that God really, really loves me and that I can do nothing about it. For the first time, I knew that I was unconditionally loved. I knew and believed the truth that the blood of Christ once and for all satisfied God and that all my doing and striving counts for nothing. I can stop and I can be rest in him. He already did all that was required. It is done. Finished. Even though this retreat was a starting point, it was still a long process and continues to be as I need to die to myself on a daily basis and surrender to God. But I can truly say that God provides me every day with everything I need on this journey. I'm a totally different person from the teenager that was confirmed, and that is why I would like to be baptized as an adult with full immersion. This baptism will be the outward sign of my dying with Christ and being made new in him through his resurrection. I continue to be amazed that the God of the universe never gave up on me and that he is interested in every aspect of my life. It is wonderful not to be in control. To trust like a little child that my Father in heaven will take care of everything. That I can stop trying to make things happen and that I can trust him completely with my life. I stumble a lot. I still stumble a lot, but I do not beat myself up. I know that I'm on a journey and I am determined to enjoy this journey with God because I know I am loved and I am forgiven. So I want to urge, especially I have the passion lately to share this with young people, to not take the long road like I did, just go do the shortcut. My, my conclusion after all this is that we, if we want to live the abundant life that Jesus died for us to have, we need to do away with that song, I did it my way, and rather go with trust and obey, because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Amen. We're, we're starting the celebration today and going to, on Wednesday, continue to celebrate um, for what God is doing in the lives of people.